Welcome to Inside the War Room. Ryan Ray here as always, and I'm just going to warn you, we have a lot, a lot, a lot of 60s, 70s, and 80s U.S. Cold War stuff coming up in the coming weeks. We also have some stuff around Roe v. Wade and all kinds of other stuff. So I hope you stick around to enjoy this podcast as it continues to grow. If you could, hit the subscribe button. But first, before we get to our guest, let's thank our sponsor. I have been doubling, tripling, quadrupling down on Twitter for a lot of reasons. I need to grow my distribution network is the main one, and Twitter is the spot for me right now to do that, which is why I'm a member of the Masterclass. It's great. They've got tons of videos that I get to go through, read the best tweets, the best threads. They have help. They answer questions. They have a private server on Discord for you to uh, be a member of. So go to ryanraysenior.com slash masterclass. That's ryanraysr.com slash masterclass to sign up. And when you join the Discord, shoot me a private message and let me know that you're there. Okay. Today's guest is Jefferson Morley. He is the author of Scorpion's Dance, The President, The Spymaster, and Watergate. This book was so good, I actually ordered the book on Richard Helms, um, his biography, which is referenced several times throughout the book, um, and we'll probably be ordering some others. And so be sure to check that out. I'll link to all of that at the show notes, which you can find in the show link, right? So, yeah, at RyanRaySenior.com. We'll link to all of that at RyanRaySenior.com in the show notes. So, without further ado, here is my conversation with Jefferson Morley. Jeff, it's great to get you on the program today. How are you doing? I'm very well. Thanks for having me, Ryan. Okay, so first off, I love the cover of the book. Let me just say that. I think it's a. I think it's <laughs> one of those covers that as you're flipping through or if you're walking through a bookstore or if you're on Amazon, whatever, it kind of catches your attention. So was that your idea? Did the illustrator, did you get some help? Cause it's, it's a great cover. Uh, no, that was uh, my press. Um, my editor, George Witte at St. Martin's press came up with that image. And I agree. It's completely original and it's very arresting. It, 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 it's both mysterious and inviting at the same time. And it, it, it seems to evoke power somehow and problems and issues of power and secrets of power uh so it's a it's a compelling image it almost it, it doesn't but almost it's like a has that ransom letter feel like you see in the movies with the different size letters the letters aren't like that but it still kind of invokes that like wow it's like this is like one of those you know spy novel or <laughs> ransom letters with all the cut out uh, letters yeah there's something slightly ominous about it too yeah. which is appropriate for the book because you know, the book deals with very deadly, serious people. So that mood runs throughout. Okay. So um, first, let's get into, I guess, the two big questions. First, you know, what's in a name, Scorpion's Dance, uh, and then why another book on Watergate? So Scorpion's Dance refers to the relationship of the two men at the heart of the story, Richard Nixon, the 35th president of the United States, and Richard Helms, the eighth director of the CIA. These men were at the top of American power for about 15 years. Um, Helms as a senior official and then director of the CIA, Nixon as vice president and then as president. So why another book? The relationship between these two men, I felt, was much more important in the Watergate scandal than was generally appreciated. And uh, so this is a new book, a new take on Watergate that looks at the Watergate affair, not just as a chapter in the biography of Richard Nixon, the president, but as a chapter in the history of the CIA. And when you look at the Watergate affair from that different angle, 
the whole story begins to look a little different because you see the hidden hand of the CIA was much more involved than, you know, than we knew when the scandal erupted in 1972-75, when the Washington Post you know, pursued the story and Congress pursued the story. Now we know much more. So this is a new book that talks about the hidden hand of the CIA in the Watergate affair. And you spend a lot of time in the book, um, you know, pre-Nixon, right? I mean, so Nixon yes. is kind of there, but you, you, a lot of the JFK era. And yeah. one of the things that's fascinated me, um, okay, so I am, I'll be 37 in a few weeks. So, um, you know, I did not live during this period. But when right. I look back upon it, I, I'm quite torn over at least how modern, the modern era perceives JFK versus Nixon, because there's a lot of similarities, it seems, on kind of how things were being ran back then. Maybe they didn't do the same thing, but you even allude to it in the book that, um, and I'm not an expert on this, but I know that there's there's at least some questions about how JFK got into office, and at least Nixon might have thought there was some shenanigans, and a lot of shady stuff was going on during JFK. Any read on why JFK is viewed in such great light and Nixon, I know why Nixon's not, but why JFK isn't viewed in a more um, downtrodden or downcast light? Uh well, I think that it's uh, the tragedy of his assassination, that, that, that Kennedy's presidency was really unfinished. And um, while a lot has come out negative about JFK, his personal life, um, uh, questions about his election in 1960, you know, the fact that he was assassinated before he could complete his presidency um, uh, has, has, has given him a kind of uh, mythic aura, maybe, you know, maybe not deserved because in less than three years in office, you know, a president can't accomplish that much. If you had looked at, you know, President Reagan after a thousand days or Bill Clinton after a thousand days, you know, their record of accomplishment would be far, far less than, than what we see now. Um, so, you know, that's one reason, I mean, Yes, history has judged Nixon harshly because of his crimes and things like that. Although when I was writing this book, I came to appreciate Nixon more. I mean, not that you like him, but he was a very intelligent, methodical, disciplined man who was sometimes treated unfairly by his, by his political enemies. Um, so I, I, I had a little bit more, I came away with a little bit more sympathy for Nixon. Yeah, and one of the things that you also do a good job of is, and I think about this quite often, especially in the, in the, in the modern time, is kind of the tension between the CIA and the administration, right? The CIA kind of has its own agenda, and they're not truthful necessarily with, with people they're supposed to report to or when questions are asked, and they kind of like slightly tweak a word. To, so they're not <laughs> technically lying, but they're lying. It, yeah, yes. Yeah, no, you capture a, 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 a a, a thing that I, I felt was funny when I was writing the book, you know, was Dick Helms would say something and I'd say, you know, this had the virtue of being almost true, you know, or sort of true. You know, yes, they, they were expert. Helms was expert at shading his statements to protect his agency. But the, the larger point that you allude to there is, you know, the CIA is an institution and 20,000 employees, a budget of several, you know, $15 billion a year now, but even billions back then. And so, you know, we like to think of the government as unified, but there are different power centers. The White House is a center of power. The CIA is a center of power. And to be realistic, you need to see, to be realistic about how the government works, you need to see how those power centers relate to each other. And the Watergate story is a story of struggle, co collaboration, tension, 
between the CIA and the White House. Yeah, and so you, you you go through this this time period where you know obviously we have the JFK assassination, but then you have the potential assassination of Castro, which is going on in the background as well, and possibly could have happened on on the same day. Uh, like like it, it's it makes you just wonder, like how many things we don't know that possibly yes. could have happened. Yeah, and one of the things that's new about this book is that I think it shows that the politics of assassination, you know, that the CIA was out to assassinate Castro, that President Kennedy was assassinated on the day the CIA was trying to assassinate Castro. You know, those, that questions about the politics and the policy of assassination were a very real factor in this Scorpion's dance between Helms and Nixon, because it was a very dark secret that both men had to keep you know, lest it destroy their careers. And when the, when the Castro assassination plots came out and new questions arose about Kennedy's assassination, you know, there was hell to pay at the CIA. The CIA was investigated for the first time, it, its practices exposed, its budget cut. It was a very profound reckoning for the CIA when these secrets came out. So Helms and Nixon had to keep the lid on that while they were, you know, being in positions of power as they were executing their jobs. The politics of assassination was always a factor between them. Yeah, and then you also do a good job of exposing or reminding at least um, this kind of CIA propaganda that is being ran in our own country uh, through news media or organizations. And a lot of Americans, maybe even today, don't don't think about the fact that the CIA is running ops inside of our own borders. Um, and it's not a conspiracy theory, it's just a matter of historical fact. And so, like, when you tell those type of stories, do most of your readers, I mean, I guess you've covered this stuff for so long, maybe most of your readers are familiar with that, but do you find that people are kind of surprised that, oh, wow, the CIA has been running ops in the U.S. for some time? You know, I mean, that's one reason I, why I write these books is because I don't think most people know or they, or they tend to underestimate it. Um, and I'm not out to make people cynical about their government, but I think we do have to be realistic. And, you know, a clandestine service you know, an organization that is basically given a license to kill and steal overseas, which is what we do for the CIA. We say, you know, you can go out in the world and you can kill and steal to defend our, you know, what the president and what we think is our national interest. But one factor, one constant in the history of the CIA is that, you know, that power is abused uh, and it's abused overseas and it can, is often abused at home as well. So, that's not a conspiracy theory. That's just a matter of history. And we see, you know, how in, in Scorpion's Dance, you can see how the, the CIA was much more involved in the big, huge political events of the day um, than, you know, than the mainstream news organizations or people in Congress ever knew. So that leads to kind of a, the next question, which was, you know, as we sit here today, obviously, you know, I think on issues like this, um, I think you, you you should read the historical facts and go, okay, well, if this has been done, then we shouldn't assume that it's not off the table today, but also you can't walk around pretending that everything is this same way. You don't know. No, no exactly. And, 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 and I think that's, that's important. And one thing people often ask me about is, you know, what's, what does this mean today? And particularly right now, people say, well, you know, what is, what do Watergate and those Watergate, the famous Watergate TV hearings where the scandal really blew up, um, what does that tell us you know, about today? What does that tell us about the January 6th hearings? And there are similarities, 
but there are, you know, there are also big differences. And, you know, when people ask me that question, I say, well, you know, back then we can see in Scorpion Sands, Nixon and Helms, while they had their differences and their tensions, they were really collaborating. And, 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 and Watergate, I argue in the book, was the culmination of the relationship between these two men that Helms really enables Nixon to create a burglary squad and, 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 and run it. And so we didn't know that the CIA was the enabler of Watergate. You know, that's a very different situation today when you know, President Trump was quite hostile to the CIA and the leadership of the CIA, those guys you see on cable TV, returned the favor. You know, they, they were quite critical of, of President Trump. So that's a big difference from, you know, from today. The, the CIA is not enabling Trump. Uh, they're institutionally, they may be, the former leaders are hostile to him. But the other thing to understand is, you know, while President Trump was rhetorically hostile to the CIA and the deep state, in practice, in terms of policy, he didn't really interfere with their work too much. So on a practical level, he was kind of pro-CIA. On a rhetorical level, he was anti-CIA. That's a difference between now and then. Yeah, and then the, the, the other thing would be is maybe just the media, because you talk about you know how the media was getting their stories and how they're working with the CIA on some level. Do you Are you concerned that, I mean, that's still happening on some level, we'd have to presume, right? And yeah. real quick. Well, no, I mean, it's, it's, it's quite explicit now. You, you see these former CIA directors on, 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 or senior officials, right. uh, officers on TV. I mean, the idea that Dick Helms would go on TV and comment on public affairs, <laughs> completely unthinkable. So there's a cultural change there as well. Um, and I think, you know, uh, I think, you know, personally, that makes me a little uneasy when I see the, those guys commenting on TV, although I, you know, I often agree with their criticism of President Trump. You know, these guys are from the clandestine service and, you know, they operate beyond the law and, you know, they have their own things that they need to be held accountable for, you know, and you can't say the CIA shouldn't be held accountable just because President Trump has done some bad stuff, you know. You need to keep your clandestine service accountable regardless. So I'm a little uneasy about those guys uh, commenting so, so, so freely on, on TV. They need to be questioned as much as given a platform. Yeah. And, and so, you, you know, kind of the difference between back then and today is I guess you have um, interviews and you know, a lot of written uh, words were going out back then. It's uh, some TV, but now right. obviously with the hyper focus of TV, so it's kind of hard to it's kind of hard to gauge how they would have handled it. But but yeah. it's just a different world, and so you you didn't you don't have these big long analysts who are on cable news twenty four hours like Helms or whatever. The opportunity wasn't there for them. No, no, you had a you had you had you had the you know you had the big three networks um, who tended to take their cues from you know maybe. Five news, five or ten newspapers um, around the country, which were much bigger and uh, uh, better staffed than than they than they are now. So uh, a, a much more, I would say, unified, uh, simple media environment. Now we've got the internet, we've got TV, radio, twenty four seven, the social media. So much more complex, distracting, confusing media environment, which makes it harder to, for us, you know, for the country to get a grip on what's going on since people don't even really agree on the facts anymore. Um, and that, you know, that changes the political reality of what's going on. 
So you mentioned you kind of re uh, have viewed Nixon in a little bit different light to the book. One of the things that stood out to me was um, he was very persistent. Um, you, you made the case that he's very hard on himself for uh, defeats, but then also he was, I don't know if crafty is the right word, but on one hand, I'm not going to run. I'm going to retire. Oh, by the way, I'm actually planning my second run secretly that no one's going to know about. Oh, by the way, it's not going well, so I'm going to stop and then come back later. So uh, maybe unpack that a little bit. I, I found that interesting. Well, yeah, that's, a, uh, yes, Nixon's incredible determination uh, combined with, like you say, a very long-term strategic vision, um, a man who thought big picture. And while Nixon came up as the hardline anti-communist, you know, kind of slasher politics, you know, he was also very pragmatic. And in the end, you know, his, his opening of diplomatic relations with China was kind of a betrayal of his original right-wing base, which was, you know, the, the, the China lobby, you know, the people who wanted to never reconcile with communist China. And Nixon, over the course of years, slowly pivots into the position where he can execute this opening, which he thinks is important for the country, and really was, you know, a great accomplishment. The fact that the United States was kind of shunning the largest country in the world I mean, it was it was not really tenable, you know, uh, may, maybe we didn't like their system, but it was time, it was past time for us to recognize them and deal with them as a real country, not just pretend like, you know, they didn't exist. So there was this persistence and um, you said crafty, creative, you know, I guess, you know, innovative as a, as, as a statesman. I mean, I'm, I didn't always agree with his politics, but um, the way the persistence and the vision that he brought to his own politics was impressive, you know, at the same time that he was a very, you know, devious kind of corrupted man. Yeah. In, in, in I chuckled at the point when he had to flip in the debate against JFK because JFK actually took the line that he took the position with the advanced intelligence. And I guess one of the things I love about these books is, um, you know, you're telling all these old stories uh, again, before my time. So some of the stuff's new, some of the stuff I've kind of heard in detail and some of the stuff I've kind of heard the fringes of, uh, but hearing stories like that, it's just, it's just, it's just stunning. Like, okay, this is how it's always been. Like, here's a guy who's hard line on how we're going to handle Cuba. Wait, Kennedy took that position. So, ah, oh, I can't do it now. And so <laughs> when you think about the transition to China, he he's, you know, that's part of kind of how we, we'd already seen him though. Right. Yeah, no, I mean, Nixon was the ultimate, you know, political chameleon. He had many different identities. He was the, you know, he was the red baiter. He was the hardcore anti-communist. He was the kind of the used car salesman, you know, he didn't shave enough. Um, uh, he had many different identities, but he was constantly working on that, you know, uh, and to make himself more palatable to the American people. And I, I tell the story in Scorpion's Dance of, how he knows that his image is awful with people and people, even in 1968, even after he's been vice president and he's running for president, they still think he's a weirdo, he's untrustworthy, you know? And so Nixon arranges to go on the comedy show, Laugh It, which was the most popular show in the country at the time, kind of irreverent, you know, skits and uh, funny, funny little things. And he goes on and he pokes fun at himself with the, the, the signature punchline of the show was Sakatumi, maybe. You know, like they would repeat that endlessly. And it was like, became a, a cultural, you know, touchstone. And Nixon goes on the show and he, he says, Sakatumi? And it was like, it, he, it was, it, it humanized him. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, but that was the thing was, you know, he worked hard to improve himself and make himself likable. And, you know, you could say it was obvious. You could say it was phony, but it kind of worked because the man got himself elected president twice. Right. So exactly. OK, so let's talk real quick in the sure. few remaining minutes about Helm. We've touched on him some. Yeah. Uh, I found him to be an interesting character. And one of the things that I want to ask you about is, and, and again, this could just be an age thing. Why is it that he seems to be um, in modern culture, not as big of a figure as Jager Hoover, who was at the same time period? Well, yeah, it's, it's a good question because J. Edgar Hoover has this reputation as the arch reactionary, kind of the, 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 the tough cop, the mean cop of America. You know, a, a title which he deserved. He was brutal on his enemies. He kept secrets. He blackmailed people. He, he was not a not a pleasant man at all. But during the Nixon administration, Helms was just as hardcore as J. Edgar Hoover, probably more so. J. Edgar Hoover was actually a little more cautious than Helms when it came to spying on Americans, that sort of thing. So, um, you know, but the reason that we know Hoover better is because Helms was this very smooth operator operated, you know, under the radar, had many friends in high places, um, a very smooth style, um, friends in Congress, friends in the newspapers, uh, which he worked at constantly. And so Helms was one of those guys who exercised power in a very discreet way. And that's why we don't even associate his name that much with the Watergate scandal, even though he was up to his eyeballs in it. Yeah, it, it's just it's just fascinating because it's like okay, here here is a guy who's tied to all of this stuff. He goes back, you know, the potential assassination of Castro, and it, it it does kind of have that spy feel to it because, as you say, he's he's kind of low key and he, he figured out a way to not only in his era kind of be overshadowed by Jagger Hoover, which he probably appreciated. Um, however, even in modern culture, he's not really talked about nearly as much as Hoover is. I mean, there's movies about Hoover every few years and stuff, and so. Um, I did buy his his biography that you referenced in the book. I think uh, there's one copy on Amazon, so I got it, so I'm going to read it, or his yeah. memoir. Um, but I found him to be a, a fascinating character, and almost, you, you reference Ian Fleming's novels in the book, um, right. which is very much a a um, over-the-top kind of perception uh, right. of a spy. But if you think about a spy, or who might run a spy agency, Richard Helms seemed to fit the bill for me. Absolutely, absolutely. He he, he was the consummate spy in that way. Um and the very, his very unobtrusive nature was a way of concealing very important things. So it was like, uh, he almost blends into the background. You know, he was the original man in a gray flannel suit. He always dressed the same. Uh, he was always very well-dressed, very well-spoken, poised, in control, yet at the same time, always giving the impression, you know, that he knew more than you knew. Henry Kissinger said about Dick Helms, he said, his smile did not always include his eyes. You know, that was Dick Helms. His smile did not include his eyes. So uh, the consummate spy. Okay. So um, we've, we've built up the characters quite well, I think. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't talked about Watergate. I want the listeners to go read the Watergate <laughs> in the book because that's, that's where we're going. Um, but the characters are quite important in the story, right? And that's, and that's part of the thing driving here is it's not just two random people that just happen to find themselves in a bad scenario. There's a lot of background and they both kind of have these, um, these uh, what's the, you know, kind of two ships passing in the night moments where they kind of come across each other's paths um, previously, you know, like I said, with the Kennedy election, um, they have common friends, they have common thoughts uh, and then they differ as well. And so they kind of, it's, 
on some level, I thought they seem unlikely for each other. And then on other times, I'm like, they seem perfect for each other. Yeah. I mean, this is Scorpion's Dance is, is a biography of power. And it's how, how these two men of power exercise their power. And they are an unlikely match culturally. Nixon from the West Coast, Helms from the East Coast, Nixon from a poor background, Helms from a well-to-do background, and, and, and so on. Culturally, they're very different. And, you know, Helms was a bit of a snob. He looked down on Nixon, and Nixon was a very anxious and resentful of people like Helms. Yet they share, politically, they're hardline anti-communist, you know, and uh, that, that I think is what kept them together despite their differences. And I do think that their, their relationship, uh, uh, certainly in the in, in poli policy and politically wise, culminates in the Watergate break-in. But in, the, in Nixon's first term, in those, in those first four years from 1968 to 1972, they actually forged a working relationship that ended very badly. And one final comment for me, and I'll get, give you the last word here. It seems to me that Helms and Nixon kind of um, both embody this um, resolve that maybe Helms and Kennedy couldn't bond over. Would you agree with that? Yes. Yeah. I think that I, I, Nixon and Helms were very much in tune with each other, and there was less conflict. There was a lot of conflict between the CIA and, and, and the White House during the Kennedy presidency, and Helms made sure that didn't happen during Nixon's presidency. Okay, we'll give you the final word. Um, what is the biggest takeaway from the book? And then I always love to hear how long this process takes, because this is a deeply, deeply researched book, so it, it couldn't have taken. You didn't write this overnight, so <laughs> yeah. final word with that. And then where do you want to send people to? So, yeah, Scorpion's Dance is the, is the untold story of Watergate. It's the story of the hidden hand of the CIA in Watergate and how that shaped the events that we now call Watergate um, leading up to the resignation of the president and also the conviction of Richard Helms, the only CIA director ever convicted of a crime. So Scorpion's Dance tells that story of these two men of power coming together, rising and then falling as a result of the Watergate scandal. Um, the book's available uh, on Amazon, on Barnes and Noble. Um, it's available as a Macmillan audio book, uh, which is quite, quite good. Uh, the same guy who read The Ghost uh, audiobook reads um, uh, Scorpion's Dance, and I think it's very good, especially if you like, if audiobooks is the way you consume your books. And there's also a Kindle, so uh, available in a wide variety of formats. This book uh, took, I got the contract for the book in the fall of 2019, so from beginning to end, it was less than three years. Um, I was helped by the fact that I had two, written two previous books about the CIA, in this same period, Our Man in Mexico, about Wynn Scott, the CIA's top man in Mexico, and The Ghost, about Jim Angleton, the counterintelligence mm -hmm. chief. So this is kind of the third in a trilogy of spies. Uh, and so all of that, what I knew from those other books kind of fed into this book and enabled me to do it you know, pretty quickly. Awesome. Well, it's a great book. And I think the thing that you pulled off well here is a lot of times books, they won't talk about topic A, and then they'll give you the backstory. And the backstory is, it might be important, but they don't do a good job of, of, of telling the story or why it's important. Or, so you did a great job of setting it up. So I, I really appreciate that. We'll link to the book. We'll link to you on Twitter as well. Uh, and yeah, people can follow me at Jefferson Morley on Twitter, where I write about the book and, and related matters. All right. Well, Jeff, thank you so much. And uh, listeners, thank you for tuning in. We'll be back next week.
Thanks for having me, Ryan. And that is a wrap with Jeff Morley. Scorpion Stance. Be sure to check out the book. Leave a five-star rating and review wherever you find this quality podcast as it helps us spread the word and get more guests. And be sure to check out our sponsor, RyanRaySenior.com slash dash. What is it? Slash dash. I don't know. It's too many podcasts today. Masterclass. I'll link to it in the show notes. Folks, we'll be back real soon.